Thank you to all of you for playing. Thanks, Mark, for singing and using your gifting for the Lord. Thank you for doing that. Well, this past week, uh, I was not here in the office or around Woodhaven very much. I was uh, on a trip with the youth group down to Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, went to a camp down there, and we just had a great time. Uh, Really, really enjoyed the students, enjoyed spending the time with them, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, It's not something I do very often these days. Uh, but it was a, it was a good time. Um, so uh, down there, um, we have a couple students who are heading off to college in the fall, and uh, we I think we celebrated them and acknowledged them a couple weeks ago. Uh, but when you when you go off to college and start in a four year school, your first couple of years, whether you go to community college or you go to a liberal arts college, your first couple of years typically are made up of taking uh, some of the core classes across different disciplines. They provide a broad foundation for your study. You take English, even if you're an engineering major maybe or whatever, nursing, you take English, take your basic English class, you take math, you take science, you take history. And a lot of times people complain, why do I have to take these classes if I'm not going to study this long term? Well, I am a proponent of liberal arts education. I think it's valuable for everyone to read good books and good literature and study history, but that's a different discussion for a different time. But those classes set the stage for you, and then when you get into your later, uh, you know, your junior, your senior year, you start to take your more specific classes and towards your degree, whatever that's going to be, nursing, engineering, um, education, whatever it may be, you start to take those specific classes and you get out of the basic classes. But when you start out, let's say you're taking a an English class, typically your first year, that English class in the catalog, when you're looking for classes, will be called English 101. And you know by the 101 that it's a basic class and that you're going to be getting the foundational ground level uh, instruction on education. And then when you pass English 101, you might go on to English 102. And then if you're an English major, you get further into the course of study and you might take English 203 or English 305. And those would be your more advanced classes that are major specific. But even when you take those higher level classes, like 305 or 406 or whatever it may be, it's all dependent on what you learn in English 101. If you don't master the material in English 101, then you're not going to be capable of pursuing the upper level classes like English 304 or whatever it may be. It's like learning the difference between your brake pedal and your gas pedal, right? If you don't know the difference between those two, then driving the car, no matter how much you know about the engine and how much you know about the rest of the car, driving your car is not going to go smoothly, let's just say. And so you have to learn those basic realities, those basic building blocks of whatever course of study it's going to be. Well, you can see on the screen today, the title for the message is Discipleship 101. We're going to talk about some of the basics of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And for each person in here, we won't be able to make progress as disciples until we come to grips with these basic truths, these basic realities. We have to learn how to practice these things. And I know there are many people in here who have been followers of Christ for a long time, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. You have been pursuing the Savior, but it's important for you to be reminded of these truths this morning. You never move away from English 101. You always have to know grammar and writing. 
And you always have to be acquainted with good literature if you're going to be an English professor or an English teacher or take that course of study. And it's the same with discipleship. You have to master these things and come back to them and be reminded of them over and over again. They're the foundation of your pursuit of Jesus Christ. But in the Gospel of Mark, here you have the disciples of Jesus And they're several years into following him, and he's begun to explain to them about the pinnacle of his ministry, his death and his resurrection, and they're not getting it. They have not mastered Discipleship 101 material, and so because of that, Jesus circles back around here in our passage today, and he's going to teach them the same essential material again with the hopes that they'll get it. And they'll start to understand it, and the implications of it will begin to work themselves out in their lives. So open up to Mark chapter 9. You can see it on the screen, Mark chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 30 and go down to verse 37. And Jesus is going to go over some of the same material that we've already seen, but he wants to make sure that these disciples get it. It's important. So Mark 9, 30 to 37. Today we're going to see three practices required to grow as disciples of Jesus. So whether you're a new believer or you're an experienced believer, let's say, these are practices that are necessary for you to continue to make progress as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I think the PowerPoint just froze. At least it did on the back screen. Hey, there we go. Three practices. The first one of these is that you need to master the foundation of discipleship. And this is in verses 30 to 32. Look with me at verse 30. They went on, this is Jesus and the disciples, from there, we'll talk about that in a second, and passed through Galilee. So keep in mind, this is kind of a geographical note as to where the disciples are with Jesus at this point. But beginning in chapter 8 and verse 31, remember back there several sermons ago, several studies ago, they were north of Israel, Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus began teaching them about his coming death and about his coming resurrection. And this was new material for the disciples. And so they're up there north, and he begins to explain this, and all this stuff happens up there, and then the transfiguration happens. They're still north of Israel, and they start this journey, the whole thing. This whole next couple of chapters, all the way through chapter 10, is a journey. And so the disciples are starting with Jesus north of Israel, and they're moving south. And at this point in the journey, they come to Galilee. And of course, this is right around the Sea of Galilee, and this is the place where Jesus spent the bulk of his ministry that we've been reading about in the Gospel of Mark. And it's interesting here that this whole section, chapter 8, verse 27, all the way to the end of chapter 10 is about discipleship. I mean, you could see the theme over here on the wall. It's about discipleship. It's about following Christ. And the whole thing takes place on a journey. And I think the implication of that for us is that our pursuit of Christ, our following our Savior, is a journey. It's something that we're on and we continue to make progress in and we continue to learn. And that's what's happening to the disciples here. So they're journeying south. They come to Galilee, the place where a lot of the ministry that we've read about so far has taken place. But this time, as Jesus goes into Galilee, he doesn't want there to be public ministry happening. Look back at verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. 
He doesn't intend to do miracles here. He doesn't intend to do healings. He doesn't want anyone to know. Instead, he has the exact opposite approach. He wants to keep his arrival in Galilee quiet. Why? Well, look at verse 31, the beginning of 31. For he was teaching his disciples. And so what we have here is specific instruction to the disciples. And this is very helpful for us, for those of us who are followers of Christ, because this is specific to us as well. We need to learn from this text and from what Jesus says here. Now, he's specifically focused on his disciples. So what's he teaching them? Look at the rest of verse 31. Saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Now, if you're tracking with us through Mark, or if you've just read through Mark, you know this is not the first time that this instruction has come to the disciples. Back in chapter 8, he gave it to them initially, and there was quite the response by Peter. Well, this is the second time. It's like Jesus circles back around, and he's giving them this instruction again, because it's important. So what's he teaching them? Well, summary Jesus became the Son of Man to serve men, and sinful men will reject his act of love and compassion and kill him. That is where he's headed. The very people he came to are going to kill him, which is shocking to the disciples. John chapter 1 explains this to us. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet... The world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And then here's the good news of the gospel that is the result of this rejection. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so this is the fundamental truth that Jesus is getting across, and this is the second time he's taught it. But I want you to notice in this, this time, in verse 31, chapter 9, he says something that he didn't say last time. Of course, he's going to be rejected, but look back. He says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. He talked about rejection before, but this is something that's a little unique here. He's going to be delivered. He's going to be handed over. To these sinful men. So who's doing the delivering here? Who does this? Who hands him over? Well, he was certainly delivered in one sense by Judas, betrayed by Judas, one of his disciples. I mean, we read about that for 30 pieces of silver. But ultimately, it's not Judas that really has the power in delivering Jesus over to these sinful men. Judas doesn't hold all the cards. Jesus was delivered, and I think what this is talking about is he's delivered into the hands of sinful men by God the Father and according to his will, to fulfill his will. He was delivered to suffer because of God's great love for us. Now, you have to make sure you get that in the right order. God the Father does not love us as a response to Jesus dying on the cross. It's not like God the Father was really frustrated with us and Jesus died and sort of placated that. And then God the Father was like, oh, okay, I guess I'll love them now. That's not how it works. 
Because God the Father loved us, he sent his son to die on our behalf. Jesus suffered and died because of the love of God the Father. As the apostles preach this, they make it really clear. Men of Israel, hear these words. This is Peter, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But they're not without responsibility. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Delivered by God and killed by lawless men, those he came to save. These are deep things that we're talking about here. God sent Jesus to become man, to die by the very hands of the ones that he came to save. And to die in order to rescue those who would kill him from the sin that put him on the cross. And all of that happened according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge, the foreplanning of God. Now, when you start to think about these things, these deep truths, how this works, and the fact that God the Father sent his son because of his great love for us, and he suffered through this, when we start to think about these things and process through these truths, these are truths that ought to melt our hearts of stone. And these are truths that are the very foundation of our discipleship. That's our first practice. We have to master the foundation of discipleship, and this is it. This is the base level. You have to get this to be a disciple of Jesus. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians. Written to believers. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, and here's that gospel. This is the foundation. This is... The reality that is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. These are the truths that are the foundation of discipleship. Why? How does that work? Why are these truths? Why is this gospel so important to your life as a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, this tells us how we moved from being enslaved to sin to even being on the path of discipleship. This tells us, these truths tell us how it all began for us. These truths situate us within the story of God's grace. These truths display unbelievable grace and unmerited favor to you and I. And you can't look at these truths and think that you had anything to do with this You can't be proud and boastful and arrogant when you look at these realities and when you respond to these truths. It's the work of God done as he sent his son to die for us on our behalf. And as you're a follower of Christ, we cannot move away from these truths because grace, this grace has to motivate us and shape us and change us every single day. This is the foundation because you're resting on this all the time. You're resting on this grace, the work of Christ, showing you grace. You begin by this grace. You continue by this grace. And knowing the truths of the gospel, as explained in 1 Corinthians and in Mark chapter 9, knowing these truths helps us to situate our lives within this grace.
Now, some of you have been saved for a long time, and you need to go back to these basic realities. You need to go back and study these things and think about these things. You need to reacquaint yourself with some ideas, and not for the sake of just being able to articulate the ideas better, but reacquaint yourselves with these realities so that they shape you and they change you and they motivate you. You need to go back and look at things like justification, adoption, redemption, union with Christ, predestination. I mean, maybe, I know how it is, you're saved for a while, And there's a tendency to always look back to those early moments, those early weeks and months of salvation and see that as the pinnacle. And there's certainly something something sweet about that. But maybe in your heart, you look back and there was a there was like a sizzle in your heart at that time. And you've lost that that sizzle, that excitement over these truths. And I want to encourage you to go back to these things. Don't let these realities just be stale doctrine that you may know to some level, but you don't think about, and it doesn't inform the way you live your life as a follower of Christ. Go back to these things. For followers of Christ, there is nothing sweeter than these words in Romans 5.8. But God shows or demonstrates his love for us. Here's how he does it. In that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Man, that is a sweet truth. And that's the foundation of our discipleship. And so we have to master what this sentence means. It's basic. I memorized this. I don't even know how young I was when I memorized this verse. But to unpack the implications and the motivations that come from this verse would take a lifetime of lifetimes to exhaust. You cannot do it. And so we have to master these truths if we're going to grow as followers of Christ. Now, unfortunately, Jesus' disciples are not there yet. Look at verse 32. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So in chapter 8, when Jesus gives them these truths, Peter speaks up sort of as the spokesman, and all the other disciples are kind of assumed to be in the background. Here, Mark sort of pins it on all of them. None of them are getting it. Nobody understands it. They know it's important. They're not getting the implications, and so they're nervous to respond and to ask about it. Why aren't they getting it? Sometimes it seems pretty clear to us, right? Like we read it and we think, well, okay. I mean, it was in the future, but it's pretty clear what he's saying. Why aren't they getting it? They're not getting it because of what we're going to look at here in a second. The second practice that is necessary. There's something going on in their hearts that is keeping them from getting this. And what we need to learn is we need to, like they do, mortify, that means put to death, the hindrance to discipleship. There was a great roadblock in their hearts that was keeping them from understanding these realities. And this is in verses 33 and 34. So Jesus is explaining these foundational truths, his death, his resurrection. They've been journeying from the north into Galilee All along the way, Jesus has been teaching these things, explaining them. In verse 33, they finally get to where they're going. Look there. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them. So they they arrive at this house. We assume it's Peter's house because it says the house. This is where they were before. This is where they tend to stay. In Capernaum, it's a comfortable place. So they get there. 
And Jesus asks them, what were you discussing on the way? So Jesus has been teaching on the way as they're walking about his sacrificial death, his giving of himself for the good of others to save men from sin, foundational truths. But the disciples have also been having a conversation along the way. And if it wasn't so sad, it would be comical. And it is kind of still comical what they were talking about here. Look at verse 34. But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. This is quite the juxtaposition here. I mean, you've got Jesus consistently teaching about sacrificial death, and you've got the disciples along the way. Maybe when Jesus stops teaching for a while, they sort of regather, and they're arguing with one another about who is the greatest, who's premier amongst them. And the way this is worded is actually hilarious because it's not just that they were arguing about it. They were systematically coming up with reasons. It's as if they're debating this and they're laying out logical arguments and reasons as to why each of them should be considered the greatest. It's like a debate club about who's the best And it's also funny that when Jesus brings it up to them, it's like a room full of naughty fifth, five-year-old boys, right? They, they don't, they kept silent. They know busted. (laughs) They, they may not understand what Jesus is teaching fully, but they know that what they've been arguing about does not match up with what Jesus is teaching here. Now I get it kind of poking fun at them. And it is, it is easy here when you read this to mock them a little bit for their self-centeredness. But if we're honest, we are equally as culpable as the disciples here. And this is the major hindrance to our discipleship. The problem that's going on in their hearts is the problem that is going on in our hearts. This is what keeps us from pursuing Christ the way we're called to. This is the root issue when it comes to sin, and they're putting it on full display here. Why is this the root issue when it comes to sin? Everything sort of goes back to this. Well, God created human beings, put them in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, and he created them to image him, right? They're made in his image. They're to reflect his glory, to put God on display. Now, that means a number of things, but one of the things it means is that We are designed to look outward from self to others. We are designed to love God and love others. Why do I say that? Because God in eternity past is a trinity. God the Father looking outward and loving God the Son through the Holy Spirit. That is fundamentally who God is. He's an outward looking God. In fact, the fact, the reality that God is outward looking is why he sent his son to earth to die for us. He's a mission-oriented God who looks outward in love. In fact, he created the world out of love so that we could see and experience and enjoy that relationship between father and son. He wants to put his son on display. Colossians tells us that everything was created for him. And so when Adam and Eve sinned, being made in the image of God, what they did was turn from looking outward and loving each other and loving God and relationship with him, they turned inward on themselves and they started to believe and to think, I know better. 
They started to sit in judgment on God's word rather than humbly submitting to God's word and living as they were created. So rather than God being the center of the universe, they tried to put themselves in the center of the universe. They tried to replace the sun with one of the planets, and it did not go well for them. And as their descendants, we are born the same way, where we try to put ourselves a number of different ways into the center. And the disciples are putting that on full display here. They're doing the same thing that Adam and Eve did and that all human beings have done throughout history. And so in Mark 9, they're having trouble grasping Christ's sacrificial love and death because of this hindrance, because of self-centeredness. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, essentially. They're saying if the kingdom is going to arrive and Jesus is going to be ruling over everything, well, man, I should be at his right hand. I should be the most important, and here are all these reasons why. They're so focused on self. And so to really understand discipleship, they need to mortify, put to death this self-centeredness and learn to love God and love others. And this is the issue for us, isn't it? I mean, if we, if we really are honest with ourselves, this, this is our, our struggle, our, our trouble. We live in the age of the selfie, don't we? And even if you have never taken a selfie before, your life, your soul is sick with self-centeredness in many of the same ways that mine is and that these disciples are. There's an author named Tim Keller who's written a really short little book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And think about that title for a second, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's a really helpful little book. And here's a quote that I'm going to read to you that I think gets to the heart of the argument in the book and to the issue here with the disciples. Gospel humility, humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. It is an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. The blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. That's true humility. That's true gospel love. It's being so turned outward to love God and love others that you you forget about yourself. You're not connecting everything with yourself. You're not thinking about how this makes you look or whether you, you need to be here or not. Everything is not about you. It's about God and about others. And so if gospel, if, if being a follower of Christ is about sacrificial love for others, mimicking Jesus in what he's done, then self-love is a major, massive roadblock to, to that pursuit. And there's only one way to put self-centeredness to death and to grow in self-forgetfulness. And that's our third practice here. So we have master, the foundation of discipleship, the work of Christ, the good news of the gospel of grace, mortify the hindrance to discipleship, self-centeredness. And then lastly, model the ethic of discipleship. The way we're supposed to live, that's the ethic. Model the ethic of discipleship. And this is in 35 
to 37. The best way to forget about self is to actively, intentionally serve others. So Jesus explains this. Look at verse 35. I love this imagery. And he sat down and called the 12. It's like he, there's a big problem here. So he, he gets them in a room, gathers them together. Okay, boys, sit down. <laughs> We're going to have a little discussion here, okay? It's important. He's going to have a good talk with them. Here's what he says. He said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. The ethic of the kingdom, the model that we're supposed to imitate, that we're supposed to live out, is the exact opposite of the world. In this culture, for these disciples, the place of honor, the place of prestige, that would have been very important to them in this culture. They would have wanted to be honored. But they're going about it the wrong way, the opposite way that they should be going about it. In Christ's value system, in his culture, the culture of his kingdom, those who serve are the greatest. It's not those who pursue honor and prestige and status by stepping on others, by running over others. Instead, it's those who humbly serve and try to do good to other people. And the word servant here that he tells them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. This means to be an assistant. I mean, you think of someone who you hire to come into your house to clean your house. They are there to do your work, to get your job accomplished. They are assisting you. Some of you work at a company with a vice president, a CEO, and they'll have an administrative assistant. That administrative assistant exists in that job in order to accomplish the job of the VP or the CEO. They are there for that person. Their whole existence centers around that other person. That's what it means to be a servant. You are looking out to the other person, trying to accomplish good for them. So in other words, those who are truly great, who are first in Christ's kingdom, live to make others look great. They live for other people. One commentator put it this way, and I thought this was helpful. At no point does the way of Jesus diverge more sharply from the way of the world than on the question of greatness. Jesus does not exactly repudiate prominence and greatness, but he redefines them. The challenge is to be great in things that matter to God. Nothing is greater in God's eyes than giving, and no vocation affords the opportunity to give more than that of a servant. And so Jesus gives them an illustration of this principle. Look at verse 36. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now notice very carefully what Jesus does here, okay? There's another passage that we'll get to in Mark chapter 10, where he does something different with the child. He says, you have to enter the kingdom as a little child. That's not what he does here. So don't read that into it. Why the child here? Well, in verse 37, he talks about, he uses the word receive over and over again to to make someone feel welcome, to be hospitable to them, to receive them into your life and to do them good. And so to be great... In Christ's kingdom, we have to be people who receive others. Now, specifically, who is the center of the illustration here? 
It's a child. So why does Jesus pull this child into the center of the room, hug the child, and then talk about receiving this child? Why make the child the center here? He uses this child to make his point because in the Roman Empire at this time, children were among the least important people in the entire culture. 50% of children didn't make it to adulthood in the Roman Empire. Children were forced to work. They were exploited in a variety of ways. They were physically beaten often. To be a child was to not be important, almost subhuman in many ways. And in the social hierarchy, the, the ladder, the social ladder of the day, children were on the bottom rung. That's where they were. But if you claim to be a follower of Christ, then you and I demonstrate that we are a servant of all and that we are like Christ, that we're disciples by receiving and by serving the least important people that we come in contact with and the least important in our society as a whole. So rather than focusing on our own agenda, constantly thinking about self, followers of Christ are actively and intentionally helping those on the fringes of our culture. So who else fits into this category in our day? Who are some people that we would say match Jesus's illustration of the child here? Well, I'll list a few. Orphans, widows, kids in the foster care system, immigrants, racial minorities, the unborn, people with physical and mental disabilities, and you could list any number of others. But I want you to see how passionate God is about this, okay? This is not just a single point that's being made in the scriptures. Serving others, particularly those who are down and out, is one of the ways that we are most like God. I want to show you this. Did you know that one of the major issues in the Old Testament that God had with Israel was that they didn't do these things. They exploited the needy in their society. Listen to a couple of passages. Isaiah chapter 1. Right at the beginning of God's indictment on the nation of Israel through the prophet Isaiah, he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Another one in Jeremiah. Your iniquities have turned these away and your sins have kept good from you. For wicked men are found among my people. They lurk like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men like a cage full of birds. Their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They have grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. They do not defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Unless you think this is just to old covenant Israel, we've got these words of Jesus here, and then we've got James chapter 1. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the least important in society, orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so it's because of this principle that this progression in verse 37 is shocking 
And it's awesome to read this. Look at verse 37 again. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. I mean, that's quite the progression there from serving the least of these, those who are needy, those who are on the the outskirts of culture, of society, of our church body. When you do that, a deed done in kindness to them is a deed that is done to God. Now, I have no doubt that if through some weird circumstance of a time machine, Jesus Christ were to walk in the back door, don't you love it when pastors use those illustrations? If Jesus were to walk into the door, right? Well, I'm going to use one this morning, okay? So I have no doubt if Jesus were physically here in our midst this morning, that we would be falling all over ourselves to provide coffee for him, to provide a chair for him, to make sure that he had a place of honor to sit. We would be wondering how he was. If it was dusty, we would be washing his feet, right? I mean, we would do anything we could for him. We can. That's what this verse is saying. When we act as true disciples and serve the least of these, we are doing it to Christ. And ultimately, we're doing it to God. You can bring a cup of coffee to Jesus. You can give up your chair for him. You can serve him by serving the least of these. And so what does that mean for us? A whole bunch of things. But you can do that by finding someone who's in need within this church body, outside of this church body, where God has planted you, and meeting that need. This takes intentionality. It takes purpose. It takes eyes open, not focused on self, but turned outward to look for the need and then do everything within your power to meet that need. That's the ethic of discipleship, serving others. That's exactly what Jesus did for us, isn't it? That's exactly what he did for us. And so when we get self-centered, when we forget that there are other people living in our church body and living in our world and in our neighborhood, when we only think about us and what we have going on and our needs and our purpose for living and what we're trying to accomplish, when we think that way, that hindrance to discipleship, we need to go back and circle around to the foundation of discipleship, don't we? Because we do this because Jesus did this for us. Because grace motivates us to serve others. I mean, think about the position that each one of us were in. Ephesians 2. I prayed through this earlier, but let me read it to you again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is not an enviable position to be in. And yet, in the midst of that, we have been graciously served by Jesus Christ. And I'm going to click forward to this. This is what he did for us. And let's end here with this foundation of discipleship. Right on the heels of that description of us in our sin and being down and out, this is the grace that has come to us. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were unlovely, when we were dead in our trespasses, 
He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And not only did he make us alive, man, he keeps pouring on the goodness. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. And he's going to continue to pour on the grace and goodness for all of eternity. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So remember and master the foundation, put to death the hindrance and model the ethic here. And let that circle you back around as you struggle to model that ethic, as you fail, and we all will. Let that circle you back around to the foundation again and go back to the work that Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so unworthy of your love and your grace. We're so self-centered. I am so self-centered. I get up and think about me. Everything revolves around me and my mind. And I pray for each one in here. I pray that you would shake us out of our self-centeredness with a vision of the cross. Jesus comes so humbly explaining that he's going to the cross to die, to suffer for our sins. And the disciples don't get it. And we fail to live it out, and yet you're still so kind and gracious and patient with us. And so I pray this morning that you, once again, would be patient with us and gracious with us and give us, by your Spirit, understanding of what this means, of the implications of this for life today. Help us not to walk out of here and go back to focusing on self, but help us to walk out of here and turn our gaze toward the cross and the work that has been done for us there. Thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.